Women aren't born warriors, we become them. And the road to becoming a warrior is bumpy as hell. Each week I'm interviewing women who through tragedy and triumph are leaping for greatness. Get ready to unleash your inner warrior. I'm Liz Swadek, and this is Conversations with Warrior Women. Hello, I'm Liz Swadek, and this is Conversations with Warrior Women. I'm so glad that you're here with me. Many of you have DM'd me on Instagram and told me that this podcast has been a lifeline and a reminder of how to keep your dreams and goals alive no matter what. I've been reading Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. I love this book so much, and I believe all the women I'm interviewing are untamed. They refuse to live by labels. They've stopped trying to please everyone, and instead they're compelled to leap for greatness and the life they deserve. Remember the road to becoming a warrior is bumpy as hell. I said it in the intro, but it's oh so worth it. Today we're talking with a woman I love to have deep conversations with. It's these conversations that I would have with people like her that made me realize these needed to be shared. In fact, it was her that years ago when I asked her what my next move was with the Warrior Moms, she replied, you need a podcast. That's what she said. So it's fitting that she's here with me today. But first, to find out more about me and this show, go to thewarriormoms.co and click on the podcast link. And if you like the podcast, leave us a positive review and hit that subscribe button. Thank you for your comments, emails, and suggestions. DM me anytime at warriorwomenpod on Instagram. Okay, before we dive into today's episode, onto our sponsor. I have a new favorite bathing suit. Actually, I have four new favorite bathing suits. Two full pieces and two bikinis. That's right, I said bikinis from Swimmanista. You guys remember I interviewed Andrea Bernholtz on my podcast. I mean, what is more girl power than being on a girls weekend with your girlfriends and realizing we all hate our bathing suits? You know why? Because they're uncomfortable. They hang on our necks. They are they rub us the wrong way. We fall out of them. We don't look good. Well, guess what? Swimmanista has changed all of that. Now you can look good. You can be in a flattering suit that looks good no matter your size. It will give you the confidence to celebrate your own body. And she has already figured out how to do this ecologically. She uses luxury recycled fabrics to create her entire collection. Okay, guys, my favorite. I know, I know you don't want to talk about a bikini, but let me just tell you, I've been working out and I feel pretty good. And these bikinis are flattering. They come high enough up. They hold everything in. My favorite top the bikini top is the happy top. It's part active, part swim. It's sexy. It has a strappy tie back design with a front V string detail. And it has a lot of support. It's padded. It also has hidden elastics. All her suits are adjustable in the front and the back. She has a bunch of different tops and bottoms and gorgeous full pieces. You guys, you got to try swimmy stuff. That's Swim, I-N-I-S-T-A. You can go to swimanista.com and put in my code, WARRIOR20, with all caps, WARRIOR20, and get 20% off. Swimanista, you guys, you have never had a suit feel this comfortable and look this good. Today on the show, we have my good friend, Dr. Serena Fierro. Serena first entered the field of education 23 years ago as a kindergarten teacher. 
For the past 17 years, Serena has served as the head of the lower school at a prominent independent school in West Los Angeles. In May 2020, Serena earned her doctoral degree in K-12 educational leadership from USC's Rossier School of Education. Her dissertation, Barriers Encountered by Women Entering K-12 Headships in California Independent Schools, can be found in USC Research Library. On the heels of completing her doctoral program, Dr. Fierro accepted a position with the Avenues World School to open their new campus in Silicon Valley, where she'll oversee the launch of the elementary school, becoming the school's founding head of the lower division. She's a warrior mom of one fabulous daughter, my best friend Izzy, and wife of my favorite real estate agent. That's right, Angelo Fierro. Shout out to you. Welcome to the show, Dr. Serena. Woo! Hey, Liz. I mean, girl, I'm so excited to call you doctor. Like, I officially have a smart friend. Like, I'm very excited for myself. I feel like you call me doctor at every occasion that we get, and I just love it. Oh, once I know a doctor, be real that I'm going to use that title as much as possible. Like, just let's trust and believe that I will use Dr. Serena forever. Forever, Dr. Serena. I love it. I love it. Okay, Serena. So Serena's my very good friend, but we're going to try to be professional. (laughs) (laughs) Serena. You have taken these last few years and you've blown my mind because you've taken your career to like a whole new level. In fact, I thought you were a nutbag when you told me you were going to go for your doctoral degree. I was like, but why? Why do you want to torture yourself with this? But you did it. But let's go back a bit. When you were a kid, because I don't even know this, what did you think you would do? Well, it may not be a complete surprise to you, but I actually thought I was going to be an actress. What? Yes. I thought I was going to be an actress. I would practice specifically musical theater in my backyard. So funny because the neighbors used to tell my parents that they could hear me acting out these dramatic musical numbers in my backyard. And affectionately, they would bring it up to my parents. Once, uh, Once I got to middle school and high school, though, I really thought I was going to grow up to be some sort of a comedian, like a cast member on SNL. That was my dream. I want to be a cast member on SNL, sketch comedy, getting down into the weeds of- I mean, I can't even believe what you're talking about. Thinking about what makes people laugh, what's funny. I was great at doing impressions. That was really the thing that I thought I might do, but I came from a family where there was more practical thinking. And so I knew even at a young age, that was probably not going to be my destiny. Were they like, you're so stupid. That's the dumbest idea we've ever heard. Or were they more just like, oh, that's funny. Okay. They were like, you know, both my parents were Italian immigrants and came to the United States with like a dollar in their pocket. And they were like, that we don't have luxury, like you don't, you're not going to have the luxury of being able to like go, like be a thespian. That's <laughs> not, yeah, that's not that's something that is at your disposal. <laughs> so you better think of some sort of career where you're going to be able to just support yourself. It wasn't like I had to have a million dollars or um, support them even. It was just, they just, didn't want me to be living in their basement as like, you know, a 30 year old mate, old maid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then when did you, when did you kind of start to realize that education was a kind of a world that you were interested in or were you kind of dipping your toe in it and thinking, well, let me just see. No, I knew, I knew. And like, I'm realizing most things come to me. Um, 
I mean, early on, as I think most girls and, and maybe some boys do too, is, you know, you grow up playing teacher. And if you have siblings or really honestly, if you have even a dog or a pet, they're your student. And so you pretend that you're the teacher and you're, you know, doing all kinds of things where you get to be teachery. And so I was one of those kids. I loved doing those things with my brother and sister and we would play teacher. And of course I was always the teacher. Um, so there, I had a little bit of that going. Um, but I remember it was close to the end of my, uh, finishing my bachelor's degree at Syracuse. And it was like, I woke up one day and I was like, I need to be, I, I need to be a teacher. I wow. need to be a teacher. And I've found that now that I look back on life, those are the, the moments. They're these like really pivotal formative moments that I have where I, I'm like, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And it and comes then, to you in a flash. It comes to me in a flash. I feel it in my gut and I know it's the right thing to do. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's really interesting because a lot of people, I feel like it's like a whole journey to figuring it out, but I love that it comes to you in a flash. That's an amazing thing. I knew it. I knew it. Okay. Well, so let's talk about your career in education a little bit. What do you like? Tell me about it a little bit. Give me like the highs and the lows, but also what are you most proud of in your career in education? So as you said in the intro, I started out as a teacher and I loved being a teacher. And even as a school administrator now, I consider myself a real teacher's teacher. I love being in classrooms. I love being with kids. I hopped from uh, teaching. I mean, I've taught various grade levels through the elementary school years. And like after about when I hit about the 10 year mark of being in the classroom, I started to feel that I really wanted to lead. I wanted to either train teachers. I wanted to mentor teachers. I wanted to write curriculum. I went through a brief stage where I thought I wanted to, you know, go to the Capitol and write a policy around teacher credentialing um, and basically standards on what you know students should need in order be, to be promoted from grade to grade. And, and I felt that bug, much like I do. It's like I woke up and I was like, I need to do something different. And so at the time I was in New York City and I was fortunate enough to be plucked to do a number of things in leadership where I got to exercise those opportunities. Um, and then, you know, we moved to Los Angeles. I moved here with my husband and I, and I got back into in, independent, into private schools and um, quickly was promoted into a leadership position once I got there. I, I really tried through my time to, to know myself, you know, who am I? What do I want? What's the purpose? Try and be this like future backward thinker where I think, where do I want to be? What do I want to be doing? And then what do I need to do to go back from there? And so back yourself into it. You back yourself into it. You, you future, you, by the way, this is like a amazing goal setting thing. If you haven't done this, by the way, it's called time traveling. You travel ahead in time to where you want to be five years, 10 years, 20 years, could it be anywhere, any t- it could be a year. And then you back yourself into it. So you were practicing time traveling, which is amazing. And that's how you backed yourself into your career. Right. And there were a lot of people around me who took notice and did a lot of tapping me on the shoulder, which I think most women experience where you, um, it's this phenomena of where people, mostly men, tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, you should really go out for this job. You should really go out for this job. Or there's this opening and you should really think about doing that. And I started to get to a point in my career where I would look back and I was like, oh my gosh, every big move I've made in my career is because somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, why aren't you thinking of that? 
And I remember thinking, I really want to make this pivot for myself where, why aren't I tapping my own self on the shoulder? Why aren't I saying, no, here's what I want to do? Oh my God, may my head pop off in this podcast. Why am I not tapping myself on the shoulder? I also just heard you say, it's mostly men doing it. Yes. Which is kind of annoying. Should we not be tapping our ladies on the shoulder and saying, I see you bringing a woman up. I mean, let's go ladies, right? But oh my God, tap yourself on the shoulder. Yes. Exactly. Ah. Similarly to the, to the way you've started the podcast, Liz, it's, it's, it's deciding, it's tapping yourself on the shoulder and saying, here's what I need to do. This is a good career move for me. Not because anyone tells you, you should do this or you should right. do that. It's like, we're always looking for this validation or affirmation that yes, indeed you do have what it takes. Yeah. But I mean, I will say to validate just girl tribeness, I do even though you have it, you're tapping yourself on the shoulder, you're saying, I want to do this. It is kind of fantastic to have a person you trust. I like, it's usually a woman for me mm-hmm. that can, but says, oh yeah, yes, hundred percent. Like just so you know, you're not insane, the things you're thinking. But I, I, I really think tapping yourself on the shoulder is like the new way to live. I'm putting that everywhere. Tap myself on the shoulder. But I remember you told me a story about when you were going for, so when you were going for your doctorate, right? Your doctoral degree that you, you peaked in your file or something you saw. Tell me about that. This was when I, okay. So normally when you're in the field of education, you have to get a master's degree if you want to go anywhere, if you want to get any sort of salary bump or have really any credibility. So this was less of a tap and more of a just the next thing to do on, on the, on the list of becoming a teacher and becoming credentialed. So I decided I would apply to a master's program. It was a pretty prominent one in the New York area. And I got in and I went through the program and I remember it was, if we all remember this either through a bachelor's or master's or whatever it is, you know, you, you have that moment where you sit with your advisor and you find out, you know, do I have in fact enough credits to graduate? Am I on track? Am I doing? So I was in this meeting with my advisor and she left me with, this is back in the, I guess back in like the olden days where you had like a paper file that had like every piece of paper that you had that was connected to you and your degree. And so she left the file on the table and went to get something or go to the bathroom or who knows what. And and I just started leaving through my po- my file casually. I wasn't, I was just sort of, I was like, oh, let me see what's in here. Like who, you know, and I went all the way back to the first piece of paper in the file, which was my admissions application and the various notes that people write when they look at a candidate for admission, for whatever it could be for colleges. It could be for, you know, mortgage, who knows? Right. And yeah. And, and I noticed that there was this note there that said, you know, good candidate, but nothing special. Ah! I just want to kill that person. Do you have their name so I can hunt them down in the street? And this is definitely one of the most, it's like in the top five most formative moments of my life. And I don't think I realized it until like 10 years later, how formative that moment was because it did two things for me. Number one, it made me want to prove that person wrong prove that person wrong, that I was everything. I was something special, or at least I was just something different or unique. I was relevant. It did that. And number two, it made me think to myself, I will never be that person 
who looks at someone and if, and uses evaluative language like nothing special. I will always look for the thing that is special or different or unique about someone and be the person on an admissions committee that says, here's what makes this person different. And by all means, that person may or may not get into the school or whatever, but never, I would never write that about something because even if they don't see it, even if that person doesn't stumble across their own file, we should never speak to each other in that way. Oh or, my God, no. No, no, no. And someone who's sitting there applying for a master's program, like clearly I got that far. I mean, screw this person, number one. Number two, <laughs> I mean, really, I hate them. Um, but this goes back to your tap on the shoulder moment for me because you're saying tap yourself on the shoulder. You could have looked at that and you could have said, oh my God, I'm not good enough. This is where it stops. I'm not gonna do this. But instead, you knew it was false. You knew it was ridiculous. And even though maybe it hurt a tiny bit, you said, F this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to propel myself forward. You let it be. I mean, I sometimes think rejection is God protect, God's protection. I, I really have seen that happen a lot. I sometimes think these little rejections end up being the fuel and the fire that other people don't have because they've just you know sailed along. I mean, when you have somebody that says, Nothing special. You're like, oh, let me show you something, buddy. Let me show you. It's so true because, and in the moment, to your point, it hurt. I mean, it hurt for a while. I mean, it really hurts to see someone look at, you know, everything that you put on paper for yourself and say nothing special. I mean, it burned deep. And I definitely had, had, I I mean, I don't think I even told anybody. Well, it's humiliating. I didn't tell anybody about it for years. I think one of the first people that I ended up telling was, was, you know, my own husband years later when I met him about this very vulnerable moment. But to your point, Liz, you know, you realize later on that sometimes things that bring pain and, and perspective, I, I think of what I've gained from that having happened, right? Like now I never, I always look for the thing. I always am curious about what makes people special because of that comment that was made about me. I mean, and look how you would never do it to another person. But I, you know what? I also think it's really important to say to yourself, when somebody calls you out of your name, when someone says like, you know, you're nothing special or, or something like that, that is a hundred percent not usually about the person. <laughs> that is a pro- the person who said it. You know, yeah. that's their weird proje- projection or whatever they saw that bothered them or they, you know, someone peed in their cornflakes. I don't know. But, you know, honestly... <laughs> but imagine to write that down. No, it's disgusting. Can you imagine to no. write it down? No, I can't. I think it. To no, write it's it terrible. Down. And I think of Meg Zucker, uh, founder of Don't Hide It, Flaunt It. You're going to hear her podcast she told me the best piece of advice she ever got was what you think of me is not my business. I love that. What you think of me is none of my business. It really isn't. You think what you want because some people look at her and call her a monster and some people look at her and say, she's beautiful. So really either way, none of, none of her business, you go through your life and you think what you think, but she's going to keep on going her merry way and changing the world. So there you go. So tell me, was this your, do you think this was your hardest lesson in your career or your personal life? Because I always feel like women have like a couple moments, career or personal, that kind of catapult you forward in your life. I know this is one of them, but is there any other like thing you could point to that kind of, I don't know, like, like this catapulted you forward? 
Good or bad? Unfortunately, when something like that happens to you, it affirms what it does, what most women, unfortunately, have been raised to think anyway, you know, that you don't have something important to bring to the table. And so as I began to rise in leadership and I found myself at the table with predominantly white men, white hetero men, um, I just kept doubting that I had something to bring to the table. I would say maybe another formative moment was having male colleagues take credit for ideas that I came up with and not really correcting them because then you just, then you run the risk of seeming too complainy or that you are power hungry. Defensive, emotional. Exactly. All of those things. And so you kind of have to suck it up a little bit. But I, I started to, off of the heels of recognizing that that was happening, I started to say, you know what, I'm gonna just going to start throwing my ideas out to this round table yeah. and see what sticks because what's the worst thing that could happen? Right. The worst was already happening in terms of people taking credit or shutting down an idea or just telling me an idea wasn't worthy and then using it for themselves, which is fine. I mean, now it's interesting because I love sharing credit for ideas. I certainly don't feel that way. I think it was more attached to those things, but um, I there's certainly been moments that that I've put myself out there and gotten credit for things that I was felt finally like that my ideas were worth something. But the the other pivotal moments is like getting into, you know, getting into a doctoral program. Yes, yes, yes. Also affirming in a lot of ways because, you know, as women, we think, you know, we've got to check all the boxes and we've got to be able to do this. And who the hell do I think I am that I'm actually going to go back to school for my doctorate, like over 40, you know, what do I think? And then to get in and to be seen as someone who could really contribute something special to the program, that was really affirming. Um, I, you know, I don't like the fact that as women, I think we have to look externally for these affirmations. I think that we, you know, I'm really digging for things in my own self to say, you know, what am I doing internally but then I think we then we become afraid that we I don't want to develop an ego and it's such a dance. I think it's something that men don't have to do because I think systemically that's just sort of the way things are. Yeah. But um, but getting into my doctoral program and the, and the things that I was able to do there certainly are moments that I'm really super proud of. Yes, and I want to talk about this because it's your dissertation. Which, by the way, our little group of friends, this was the greatest one. You revealed this dissertation and everyone freaked out. And I had been literally talking to you about it for six months. So I already knew about it. And I was like, I couldn't wait. And I loved the reaction because their reaction was much like mine, which was like, what, what are you talking about? (laughs) So you recently got your doctorate, your dissertation. I mean, what is it? I want to know what you think it says about women, but first tell us like what, you know, what it was and how you came to this conclusion. So, so a big, obviously a part, a big part of any doctoral program is completing a dissertation, which is literally like giving birth to a child. It is, you're so emotionally connected to it. You have to choose a topic that you're deeply passionate about. Otherwise you'll just be miserable the whole time. Totally. And 
finishing and going through the the motion, going through the whole entire process of what a dissertation was, has changed me unequivocally as a person, as a woman, as a leader in education. Because what you do in a dissertation is, you know, you pose these various research questions, things that you want to find answers to, and you have to find quantitative data, like numbers, you know, X percentage of people think this or that about this topic. So you have hard data. And then you want to find qualitative data, which is what do people feel? How do people think about that? And so you go into the field and you you send surveys out and you you receive data back from a pretty wide cast net. My net was California, independent school, women in leadership positions. And then you go out and you interview these people and they tell you their stories. And this dissertation I mean, talk about women and vulnerability and women and affirmation. It, it, I mean, I wept listening to these interviews because you go and you interview women and you listen. Part of a good, what good doctoral work will be is you listen to their interviews in the car. You listen to them as you're falling asleep. You listen to them while you're going for a walk and you hear them over and over again. You look for the messages that they're giving you. So basically what I did was I was looking for number one, what are the what what do what are the barriers or at least the perceived barriers that women in le- key leadership positions in California independent schools think were existed for them as they tried to get into their current positions so think of a women in leadership in independent schools as like the equivalent of like a superintendent or you could say a principal um, in an independent school in California and the data that I found was was really interesting. So the first piece was what were the barriers? And so first women said that they felt- and By the way, you the things you found out are the total opposite from what you thought you were going to find out. Some, yes. Some of them affirmed things that I thought were true. Um, and yet to a point where I thought, oh, this is true. And they were like, no, 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 it's, it's really true. Um, and others were brand new things that I hadn't thought about. So first okay. women talked about- how they really felt that that they were um, the f- having emotions about anything um, was a big barrier to them. Like they they kept getting messages as they were going through this process of interviewing to get these key leadership positions that people were worried um, that their emotions would influence administrative decisions for them. Um, and that they kept getting messages from trustees or search committees that really wanted candidates who were strong and stoic and having gravitas. Um, and so they, whereas the funny thing is that they kept feeling like having emotions, being able to access their emotions was a major strength to their leadership style. Um, so that was something that they felt like they weren't ready to give up, but they felt like the message was clear. Uh, the second thing was they kept getting messages that folks were worried that women were just unqualified to handle budget or finance, that that was something that they felt like a woman in that position was just not going to... They thought that, that was uniquely male to be yeah. able to handle a budget? To be able to handle a budget. And I, I interviewed women who were like, wait a second, ha- like I handle all my ha- the finances of my house. I was just going to say like, that I, most women I, handle all the, the, hold the purse strings of the house. 
Exactly. Exactly. And so they felt, they also felt like there was some background there to that, that men, as they were rising through the ranks, were given more opportunities to look at budget, have opinions about budget, where women weren't sort of like, quote unquote, bothered with those things. So they were really affected by that perception and, ha- and found that they had to prove over and over again. I mean, even I interviewed this one woman who was a math major. Oh my God. Through- college and a math teacher, high school, you know, even she dealt with issues of, but can't she really handle the budget? And the third thing, the third perception of, of a, a major barrier was, could women really be strong business leaders? Could they have the political savvy and really like the, the, the gravitas to be able to make hard, hard decisions? Because the gendered norm of independent school leadership just kept aligning with these traits that were being held by men. You know, mm-hmm. not having emotions, being able to make hard decisions, being able to fire people. They kept wanting to know, you know, as a woman, are you comfortable firing people? I had this one woman say, she's like, have you seen me ground my teenage son? Let me tell you something. I am fearless. I, I kill me- people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like I can make these decisions. So then the next category that I looked at was um was going through this hiring position and because I wanted to know like as you were going through these various positions that you were trying to access and hiring you know what were the questions like I was dying to know are people still asking these archaic questions when women are going through the interview process and it's so so much harsher than you would even remotely think it was about 75% of women responded in my survey that they um, they confronted discriminatory hiring or promotional practices in their career. 75%. And so then I asked them things like, what? Three main things came out of it. Number one, they wanted, they were at to this day, details of your family life. How many kids do you have? How old are your kids? I think about 40% were asked questions about their children. And I kept thinking like, why do they care about how old your kids are? And it comes down to, you know, are your kids going to come before your job? Right. And, it, and, and, and that's a problem. That was the other thing. Like the fact that that was going to be a problem. The second thing was about 46% said, you know, they wanted to know, they always got the question, how do you manage work-life balance? Tell us, how do you manage work-life balance? Like, I mean, are I mean, you- I can't even imagine a man being asked either of these questions. Exactly. No, they don't. They don't get asked it. Can you imagine asking a man, how do you handle the work-life balance? Huh? Yeah. How do you handle it? Yeah. I mean, are you going to be able to come to evening events? Because what if your kid wants you to tuck, tuck them in? This one woman said to me, she's like, first of all, she's like, it's none of your business. That's just number one. Number two, if I'm even sitting here at the table interviewing for this job, I've already figured that out. Yes. You don't need to worry yourself. Yes. By the way, we worry ourselves into the ground. Yeah. I don't exactly. need anyone else to worry for me. Thank you very much. I've already gone nine steps ahead of this bozo, whoever this guy is. <laughs> I've already figured that out. Who's going to tuck my kid in? So yeah, like, it's hysterical that they think they need to tell us this. Or that they need like to, to remind you that that's something you're going to need to like work out. Um, and then about 55% said that they got asked the question, what's the occupation of your spouse or partner? They wanted to know, you know, are you going to be the primary breadwinner? What kind of job is your spouse going to have enough wow. flexibility to care for the kids? Wow. 
and there, these women were deeply, deeply bothered by the fact that their familial responsibilities were basically, they're being judged on the level of familial responsibilities. Like how, how much was this woman going to be able to talk to basically toss over her responsibilities to her spouse? Wow. And was she going to be- all our work for us, these lovely people. I know. Was she going to be able to uh, be flexible with the amount of time she dedicated to her family or not? And these women just said like, why am I explaining this to these search committees? This is not something that, um, you know, I've already figured this out if I'm sitting here at the table with you and it's insulting. It is insulting. To have you actually question how am I, it's like, Liz, if you had someone who you were bringing this podcast to and they were saying, well, hold on a second, aren't your kids going to be screaming in the background? Aren't they going to be interrupting you a million times? It just assumes an unprofessionalism. It assumes that you don't know how to handle your life. Like it's a degrading, demeaning question. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. And it's really a shame that we, because it's not like men, especially men these days are juggling similar, you know, a lot of guys these days are co-running their homes with their, with their partners. Yes. And it's, they're involved just as much, but yet they don't get asked these questions. So, um, so then, oh, then when did the checking the box thing happen? Yeah, so this is, this is the next one. So this is, oh, okay. this is the one that this I know. This is the one that really gets yeah. me going. Yeah. And so this, so, so one of the professors on my research committee ended up saying to me, she's like, I just got to tell you before you start digging into your research process, you, I, you have to find out from women if they self-impose some of these barriers. Like you're talking about, you know, you're digging into, you know, they get, these, you know, the systemic barriers of what society puts on women and how they feel about, you know, the, the barriers that they get during the hiring process. Like there's gotta be barriers that women self-impose upon themselves. And, um, and it actually ended up being the single greatest barrier that women face was this self-imposed barrier, which is called, and if you, you can go look at it, Google Scholar, you'll find lots of data around it and research called the confidence gap. The confidence gap. Okay. It's called the confidence gap. And what the confidence gap is when women question Mm -hmm. their own experience and their own abilities to perform a job successfully, which contributes to this belief that they exist as imposters to whatever it is that they're doing. And for this particular dissertation, it was to leadership. So they start to worry. And so there were several women started saying to me things like, you know, guys would throw their name in the hat. Like they would look at the qualifications for a, a position like a superintendency or a head of school position or whatever it was. And they're like, yeah, I got like maybe like five things on the list of say like 15 things. And they're like, ah, I'll just throw my name in the hat. And no one would think anything of it. They're like, yeah, throw your name in the hat. They've got like five of the 15 competencies that they're saying they're looking for in the job or the requirements of this job. So these are are men that are thinking, okay, well, I've got some experience in these five things. I don't even know anything about the other 10 they're asking about. But you know what? Hell to hell with it. 
I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. You know what? Maybe I'll get the job, right? Well, or because society has always told me and affirmed for me as a man that I can throw my head in the hat in the ring and no one's going to, no one's going to give me a side eye or, and they're going to give me so much confidence around, oh, you can do this. You can learn fast. No one's going to say, who do you think you are? Exactly. Whereas women, we feel like we have to check every single box before we throw our name in the hat. So I need to have this degree. I need to have this on lockdown. So in other words, when we see the 15, if yep. we don't possess one of them, we're yeah. already like, ooh. Right. I don't and not know. Like we have to have all the boxes checked, but we have to feel like we have total and complete competency in each one of those boxes so that by the time... So can you imagine you have a woman who's putting her name in the hat who, who has got maybe 14 of the 15 on lock and you and she's up against a man who say they're in the finalist position. I th- There were some women who I interviewed and they were like, oh my gosh, when I got to the finalist, who it's maybe like three to four people in the finalist. And she's like, and I would look at the resumes of these men next to me. And I'm like, oh my God, like that's my competition. I could run circles around some of these men who are finalists with, and and don't get me wrong. There's also men and women who they were in finalist positions with, who were amazing people in their own right. But for the most part, um, so, so I asked them, you know, what, you know, what do we do about this confidence gap? Like there's gotta be, you know, now that we're recognizing that we self-impose a lot of our own barriers. Okay. Mm -hmm. That this is something we can actually control we self-impose a lot of these barriers. And so a lot of the things that, that these women ended up saying were, you know, women have to lift each other up. You know, these are things that we know already. And Liz, you're such a champion for women lifting each other up. We have to lift each other up. We have to tap a woman on the shoulder, tap her woman. Yes. Tap a woman on the shoulder and get involved in as much as you can so that, you grow your experience. And also too, you encourage women, up and coming women, you bring them onto boards, you, whatever you can do to bring women, like pull them up. And, and also too, like any kind of training and mentorships and coaching that we can do for fellow women helps close that confidence gap for them. Yeah. I, you know, and I think that this is what's hard. I think because women have this confidence gap, they end up not pulling another woman up because of the way they're feeling about themselves. You know, I, I, I'm reading uh, Demi Moore's book right now, which is fascinating on so many levels because she, I just, first of all, I don't know how she's alive. Let me just start there. Her childhood is so rough, so unimaginable. The things that she's been through are so heartbreaking. You really don't even understand how she's alive. But one of the things she points to, which I think is very true, is that people often treat people exactly how they, in their deepest heart, feel about themselves. So I feel like some of this confidence gap, if you're lacking confidence, if you're feeling less than, if you're feeling like you're not enough, you don't have the thing where you're going to reach out to another woman because you're feeling not confident in yourself and you're feeling upset and resentful. And so you don't want that woman to succeed. I have worked with women like that and it breaks my heart. I've worked with them on charities and businesses on PTO boards where they just, they were out to get me. And I thought, why? Like, I always wanted to be like, we're a team and let's help each other. And let's, you know, when I was president of the, of the PTO, the PA board, of course, um, I was looking for, 
the young one beneath me that I could say, oh, you know what? You would be good for this. And I, I tapped a woman on the shoulder and I got a lot of shit for that. A lot of shit for that. And I, I've never forgotten that. I thought, what is this? Why don't, like women need to be excited and want to tap another woman on the shoulder. It's part of the sisterhood. You know, we need to help each other. It is, it is. And you're, and you'll know the women that you, that you believe possess the kinds of qualities of character that are positioned well to do those things. You know, it's also too like just changing the narrative. Sometimes it's going out and just talking to people about, you know, demonstrating the value of emotional intelligence and decision-making. You know, Mm -hmm. that's one thing that women get, you know, we have to, it's like not just putting ourselves out there, but changing the entire narrative around what good leadership looks like, period. And saying that, wait a second, being able to access your emotions is one of the single most important qualities that any leader should have. So regardless if I'm a a woman or not, and you think that that's something that I'm going to default to, let me actually put this on the table and say, this is a really important decision-making quality. Um, or, or, you know, even if you're in an interviewing position, if you're in an interview or you're working on a search committee where, where I've had the privilege of being on the other side of a search committee, where I've had the opportunity to influence the way we ask questions and the way we look at candidates, you know, there's a lot of blind interviewing going on right now where you don't know the gender of the person, you don't know, you know, lots of, you don't know their ethnicity, you don't know their you know, you don't know lots of different things about them so that you can make decisions based on what they bring to the table. Mm-hmm. So I think addressing the misconceptions is a big place to start in addition to what you do for yourself. Um, also, I think just talking about talking about the things that female leaders do well that you wouldn't think they would do well. And for example, this one woman had shared with me that she really, she told her board of trustees that it was really important that they go around the community and they talk to people about how good she was with the finances, how good she was with facilities management, how good she was with, um, you know, dealing with, you know, really hard HR decisions. She said, I had to tell them to go around and be an advocate for me in the community on those topics because they're not going to think I'm naturally going to be good at it. You have to speak it into existence. You have to champion it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of tapping a woman on the shoulder, you are raising a young woman. My favorite lady, Izzy. Um, what as a mom, what do you think the most important lesson is that you're teaching Izzy? Boundaries. Ooh, girl. Boundaries. Specifically how to set them and how to follow them. I think it's so important, especially young girls and also for young boys too, setting boundaries for themselves and respecting boundaries. But, uh, you know, she just got a phone and we went, I mean, gosh, we have dragged out the whole process of writing a contract up, following a contract, you know, modeling this boundary setting with her around you know, which group chat you're a part of, you know, who you give your phone number to, when you accept a FaceTime call, having your phone in your room, not having your phone in your room, you know, looking, I I try to regularly look for opportunities to model boundary setting with her because I am a firm believer that if she doesn't practice boundary setting, um, 
and, and know what it's like when we're doing it with her, how will she know how to do it for herself? Yeah. Yeah. Young people will, I mean, think about the internet, think about being an adolescent in the world today. A lot of it is boundaries. And so I think that that's the thing that I'm spending the most time on with her right now. I think the boundaries and as my, my Ernestine, I think you've listened to Ernestine's podcast, but I love the non-negotiables. Uh, I love the idea of knowing your non-negotiables. What are you willing not to do before you get into a situation, right? What does yeah. our family believe? What do we believe is true? And how are you going to take that on the world? Because someone's going to come up to you and confront your very non-negotiables that you set. So you may, you've got to have them in place. Yeah. So I think that is amazing. I love boundaries. Um, you are in the process of opening this new school and also making contingency plans at your current school that you're going to be leaving. Um, we've been doing virtual school and we've done it and it has been tough uh, for months due to the coronavirus. What do you think the future is going to be for schooling going forward in the fall? I mean, I know we don't, we don't have a crystal ball, but at the same time, I know you're kind of making plans right now. What's, what are your thoughts? Because we've, we've talked about this a bit. Yes. Well, one of the things that I like, the term I like to use is, and I, I think Dr. Michael Thompson coined it, but he said- let's My favorite person on earth, Dr. Michael Thompson. I know. He said, he said, let's get something straight. He's like, we are not coming off of uh, you know online school or homeschooling. Those are two options that someone chooses and we prepare for, right? What right. we've come off of is emergency distance learning. Thank you. Emergency. We had emergency. Learning. I'm running that down. We have had emergency distance learning. Yes. So that that's just first and foremost what to, what to recognize. We we've just all experienced um, as parents. And by the way, how well have we done? Considering we've done very well. Considering I feel like people have yeah. done very well within an emergency situation. Yes. In, in West LA, I think we've managed it really, really well. And I think that also too, from house to house, it's different. You know, some people do well with unstructured time. Some people need a lot of structure. And I think school leaders are in, no one, I mean, no one, at least in my generation has lived through a pandemic. So how could we even know what to do? So, you know, listen, I think the, the disruptor in me has absolutely loved the various opportunities in this particular moment in education. You know, there's things like online tools that I've I've dipped into, like Literably or Epic, and there's IXL and Dreambox. Um, there's innovative teaching approaches that we've we've discovered, things like GoodNotes or Note Shelf, where you really get to make these online experiences for kids super visual and give it connections. We've had author illustrators do lessons with kids online and cool self-guided projects. Um, there's just been this whole exposure to technology with Google Docs and Zoom. Oh, Who knew Zoom yeah. going to be so popular? Um, and then the silver linings of independence for kids, like with chores and play, like really valuing play for kids and even boredom, teaching kids how to be bored. So just I just want to start by saying that, you know, I think, like I said, the disruptor in me has really enjoy pockets of what this has done to education because I really don't think we're ever going to go back to what what was before we know too much about what the possibilities are. So here's what I think that that we can expect for the fall. We are every single school district in the United States is working on scenario planning, right? 
scenario A, B, J, K, you know, Z, all different scenarios. Yeah, I feel like we have to have A through Z. Yeah, here's what happens if this happens. Here's what happens if that happens. So, you know, we've got all these scenario plannings and I, I think of three major things that, that I'll leave you with that I think are important. Number one, the first thing on every school administrator's mind is health and safety of the entire school community. Yes. Not just the students, but their, what they bring home to their families and the staff. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you're going to see is, you know, if assuming that schools open in the fall, it's going to be students and staff only. You're not going to see parents. You're not going to see anybody else on campus except the main customers and the people who deliver content, which is the teachers. You're going to see class sizes go way down. I can't imagine that you might see class sizes with older kids be bigger than 10, but you're looking at about 10. You could also see what's called on a week, off a week instruction, where you have half the class come in for a week while the other class zooms into that class and then they flip flop. So you have this on, on a week, off a week. So I think those are some things you could look at. Number two, is there, you know, the whole idea of physical distancing is really going to create some, some challenges with connections. You're going to see desks that are going to be six feet apart, no shared materials. Every kid's going to have their own group of materials that they're going to have to play really close track of. Lunch is going to be in shifts. I think PE is going to have a real challenge. And I I feel for these kids. I thought there was not going to be PE. Well, that's the thing. I mean, depending on which scenario plan we're thinking of, some of the scenarios, Liz, do say no PE. Or music, or music, because now there's a whole issue with, you know, singing and, you know, the potential, like, spit that comes out of your mouth when you're singing and playing instruments. Can you tell your dog to, um, Goose! I mean, do you hear this dog barking? It's hysterical. Okay. Yes. Okay. So yeah, no music because you're going to be blowing into a instrument or singing and the droplets and yeah. Yeah. And then you've got the bathroom schedules and- Oh my God. One at a time to the bathroom. Exactly. And specialists zooming into classrooms. Like how do you get science and Spanish? Um, Even things like if you're wearing a mask, how do you teach a kindergartner how to sound out a word? Right. With a mask on. So all the physical distancing and mask wearing. And then third- you know, is this idea of recognizing that December through March is pretty much certainly going to be back to remote learning. Yeah. The only difference is And then that- is there really a value then to right, coming to back, back to school to only go back again virtually? I mean, I know parents don't kill me, please. Jesus help us. <laughs> I, I, I want my kids out of the house as much as you do. I want them to see their friends as much as you do. But I, I worry about the jerking them back and forth and they've like we talked about, Serena, we talked about how these kids have kind of mastered this virtual thing. Is it ideal? No. Is it good? Not even close. It's not even close to teaching in person. But if we're going to go back any way to do it again, because we're going to have a surge or a, a relapse or the flu season is going to come again, I, I kind of don't know what the value is of sending them there for a couple of months and then they come back again. I know. It's almost like you're, you know, you, we all grieved so much when our schools closed. Yes. We grieved connection for the, from the parents and the kids. And I mean, so many things we grieved the loss of. I mean, yes. it was, it was hard. Oh, now we're starting to feel like we're getting, we're, we're, we're further along in the stages of grief. Yeah. 
And so to think that we would go back only to re-experience that grief again, it's almost like you can't, it's almost like we're, we're scared to do it. So, you know, in the various scenario planning, we're thinking, you know, is the cost, is the benefit worth the cost, you know, is, is that. And so for the littlest kids, I think it is, you know, I think if you're like in preschool or kindergarten or first grade, it's, it's super important. But how do you keep them away from each other, Serena? Let's be freaking real. They're going to jump on their teacher and kiss her square on the mouth. I mean, that's what they do. (laughs) Right. Yeah, you can't. I was all over my teachers. I practically like sat in their lap while they taught. I was like, hello, I love you. Well, because as humans, we're built to connect. I mean, we're built to have to be connected to each other. And the, the way that you learn how to be vulnerable, the way that you learn how to have empathy is through human connection. And so yeah. that's the very thing that we're not having right now. And so I think some would argue that bringing kids back to school is important because even if they get a small dose of that, then they're filling their buckets a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, I think that there is benefit to it, but it's going to be hard. I mean, I think next school year will look more different than anything we have ever experienced in our lives. Hopefully our teachers and parents are, have sturdied themselves up a little bit that we're ready to dip back into it. And then I think even when you look at fall 2021, education is going to completely and utterly be changed moving forward. And, and, and well, you know what? I, totally. And I, you know what? I want to get into the, this with you on a live on Instagram, because I think a lot of parents want to like hear an, an administrator's point of view. So I want to get further into that because, but I have to get to my speed round. I mean, my speed round is my favorite thing. And I even know the answer to the first question. Your speed <laughs> round. And I'm not going to just say the answer, even though I know it's the answer. I know the exact answer because we go out and have drinks together. So I know your exact drink that you drink, but Serena... Dr. Serena, tell everyone, what is your cocktail of choice? A freezing cold martini. And I'm talking freezing cold like you can- you like a little ice chip on the top. You'd like it like a little skating rink. Yes, you do. Wayne Gretzky needs to slide across the top. Yep. Yep. But you do not like the blue cheese olives, by the way. No. I you do I the actually, plain olives. Right. I like it dry. I yeah, like I like a blue cheese. You know how I am. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, what is the mantra or quote you live by? Be a learn it all, not a know it all. Boom! Drop the mic. Be a learn it all, not a know it all. That is a mi- you know who's going to love that? My husband, Brett Swadek. He loves <laughs> he love that. Um, what simple thing do you do for yourself, lady? Self-care tip. Are you going to talk about your bath during the day that you took the other way? I think you talked about that. That's right. (laughs) Love a good bath. Okay. Yes. I love good bath. And I I close down everything. I mean, the door, the curtain, like everything. And they, and and my family knows, don't you dare come in when I'm taking a bath. Oh, it's like a safe room. It's like you're in a safe room. Yes. That's where I do. That's where I do actually a lot of my reading is in there. I do a lot of my reading. All tech is off. I love my baths. Yes, that, that's, that's amazing. That one time I took a bath in the middle of the day during quarantine, I said to myself, I would love to do it. And I did. And it was so indulgent. I haven't done it since. So I need to get that. Oh back. my God, do it again. Okay. But any other self-care tips besides your bath? Because I do love your bath. I love running. Yeah. I've been, since the quarantine's hit, it's really been, because um, if I do any kind of exercise in my house, you know, you have a hundred people bothering you and coming in to ask you questions. Running, is, I'm running, I, no one can really get to me. And so I love that. It just clears cobwebs. Cobwebs. Like sometimes I'll just say to my husband, I got to get the cobwebs out. I just got to clean them out. Yep. Yeah. Love running. What makes you feel unstoppable? 
seeing obstacles as opportunities. That's the thing that makes me think nothing can get in the way. Like any obstacle is an opportunity. And I think surviving this emergency remote learning has really taught me that. I think that is 100% true. Um, Who do you most admire? I got to tell you, women who aren't fooled by the false existence of a work-life balance. Like women who see their work as feeding their personal lives and their personal lives as fodder for great work. That is brilliant. I really look up to, you know, this whole, it's a falsity, this work-life balance. It's one and the same. Do what you love. So that way it feeds your personal life and your personal life should feed your work. Bring your whole self to work. That's how it should be. I could not agree more with, that's a great point, sir. I love that. Okay, what is exciting you the most right now? In this moment, the fact that Cal, you know, the University of California has dropped their SATs and their ACTs. and No more SATs, no more ACTs. I know. So those of you who are listening out there, you have got to read the New York Times article on Cal dropping their SATs and ACTs. And I got to tell you, for all intents and purposes, we are never going to go back to the way education was. And I think, I mean, I can't believe it took COVID to finally get some of these standardized tests to go away so that kids can, it all goes back to the admission story, you know, so that kids can join programs, if it's college, if it's whatever, without being seen as a number or the way you score on a test, but really being seen for the qualities of your character and the merits that you're really, truly proud of. And so this is really, really exciting me right now because everything I think comes down from what colleges and universities are doing, and that's going to affect a lot of the way educational programs run. Well, Serena, I have had so much fun talking to you, and I think we could all agree, all my listeners, I can hear them right now telling me that you are something special. And we love you. So thank you so much for all your insights and everything and just taking our talks from the couch in the backyard and bringing them onto the podcast. I love you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Liz, for having me. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. This is Conversations with Warrior Women Podcast with me, Liz Swadek. Remember, every woman has a story. You just need to ask her. Until next time. Bye.